This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could please turn to the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 today. Luke chapter 23. If you're new to the Bible and aren't exactly sure how to find your way there, um, there's a table of contents in the front of every Bible. and You can look up there where the Gospel of Luke is, and then you will turn to chapter 23, which would be the big number. And we're just going over one verse today. We're going to be in verse 26. And as you turn there, I wonder, has anyone ever seen the show, uh, The Antique Roadshow? Anyone ever watched that show, Am I the Only Nerd? Okay, good, good. Great for some people. Um, if you haven't seen that show, what it is is people kind of bring in just usually a lot of junk, and, uh, and it's usually shown to be a lot of junk, but every now and then there's something very rare and something very valuable that is found. I was watching this show one time, and a family brought in uh, what looked to be just a common jar. I think they were using it to, like, make pickles or something. Uh, they were using it for very common uses. But as they started to examine it and see what was there and take a closer look, come to find out this jar, this pickling jar, was actually from the Han Dynasty in China, 200 B.C. It was worth about $3.5 million. It had just been their family for a long time, and they're not even sure how they got it, but it ended up being something incredibly rare and valuable. This morning, my original plan, as we were making our way through Luke, was to go through verses 26 to 38. However, I couldn't get past verse 26 in my study. As we come to read it, it seems to be a fairly ordinary, commonplace verse, but I think there's something incredibly valuable for us here in what looks to be fairly common at first glance. See, in this verse, we're going to meet someone who walks with Jesus on the way to the hill called Calvary, the hill of Jesus' death. And if you've ever been sad and desired comfort, if you've ever been unhappy and desired joy, if you've ever been weak and desired strength, tired and desired rest, and I believe there's something that God wants to say to you through this verse. Let's read Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Would you pray with me real quick that God bless the reading and preaching of his word? God, this is a short verse, but I think you have a lot of things to say to us through it. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, a weak servant. Lord, would you do something far more powerful than I could ever accomplish in my own words? Would you touch people's hearts with your word? Please meet with us, God. We want to meet with you. We want to open ourselves to you. Please, Lord, come have your way with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So here's the question that caught my attention. And maybe decide to preach a whole sermon on this one verse. Here's the question. Why is this guy Simon the only person who's named during the entire 
entire ordeal of Jesus' crucifixion. Throughout all the different people that Jesus interacts with on his way to the cross and as he's on the cross, there's only one person's name who's mentioned. It's this guy, Simon of Cyrene. In the coming weeks, we're going to meet the famous thief on the cross and see the good news that Jesus proclaims to him, but we're not told his name. We're going to see religious leaders and soldiers, a group of people mourning. There are all kinds of people who are there at the cross of Jesus, but none of them get named. The only person who's named is Simon of Cyrene. Why is that? Well, the best place to find your answers about the Bible is in the Bible. And so if you do some digging, here's what you will come to find out about Simon of Cyrene. We're told in Acts chapter 6, Acts is actually the second book that Luke wrote as a follow-up to this gospel that he wrote here. In Acts chapter 6, we're told that in Jerusalem, there was a synagogue for people who were from Cyrene. Cyrene was in northern Africa, was now known as modern-day Libya. And you see, what good, faithful Jewish people would do would be to make regular trips to Jerusalem. Because it was in Jerusalem that, the, that there was the temple of God, the place where they would go to make their prayers, the place where they would go to make their sacrifices, the place they would go to participate in major feasts. And there were so many Jews that came from Cyrene that they had their own gathering place. They had their own motel, if you will, set up in Jerusalem. It was a place just for Cyrenes. That's how many, how many of them would come to this place. And Simon is one of these Jews. He is not a Jew from Jerusalem. He's here just passing through. He's here most likely in town for the Passover feast. And somehow, this out-of-towner gets caught up in the crowd that is following Jesus to the hill of the skull, what in Aramaic is known as Golgotha, or in Latin is known as Calvary. We know from the Roman historian Tacitus that it was common for people condemned to die on a cross for them to have to carry their cross to the place of their execution. You see, the goal of crucifixion was not just death, but humiliation. Crucifixion was considered the worst, most degrading way to die in the Roman Empire. And so it was a form of execution reserved for the worst of criminals. And so a person seen carrying their cross was being singled out as someone through which the community was supposed to gather around and despise. But Jesus had been so badly beaten that he struggled to carry his own cross. We're told in other scriptures that he had been so bloodied and brutalized that he barely at this point even looked human. And so as he starts to walk, his broken body cannot handle the weight of his cross. I'm sure the Roman soldiers tried to whip him and kick him to get him going, but they found they could not move him, and so they grab a guy out of the crowd and force him to carry this cross. Roman soldiers had absolute authority over Roman subjects. And so they take this instrument of torture and death and humiliation and place it on Simon's shoulders. Now we need to be clear, this is not just being asked to carry something. This is an odious task 
that would have been personally degrading. The rough wood cuts into Simon's back. The jeers of the crowd start getting directed even at him because anyone associated with the cross is to be despised. Maybe even spit intended for Jesus starts to land on Simon's face. Friends, this is unfair. This, this is unjust. Simon didn't deserve this. He wasn't even from this place. But yet, Luke wants to make sure that we know Simon's name. Why is that? Simon's not only named here, he's actually also named in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark, two other divinely inspired biographies about Jesus. In the gospel of Mark, we're told not only Simon's name, but we're also told in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we're told that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Here's what's interesting about that. Mark wrote his gospel largely for the church in Rome. And it's interesting, if you read Paul's letter to the church in Rome in chapter 16, verse uh, 13, listen to how he talks about one of the members who were at that church. He says, greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord, an elect man of the Lord, also his mother and mine. See, here's what's going on. Luke, Luke writes, this is Simon of Cyrene. And Mark, because he is writing to Romans, adds into the Roman church, hey, the Simon of Cyrene, he's also the father of Rufus and Alexander. Did you see what he's doing here? What, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, you know this guy. You know his sons. They're in your church. You know his wife. One of his sons gets called a choice man of the Lord. He's a strong leader. He was a pillar in their faith community of the Roman church. And Rufus's mother, who would be Simon's wife, she was so influential that Paul says she'd become like a mother to him. And then watch this. In Acts chapter 11, which again is the second book that Luke wrote, and so he is purposely linking these things together. In his sequel, he makes sure that we know in Acts chapter 11 that there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. See, by Acts chapter 11, there's now a church in Antioch, I mean church in Cyrene, excuse me. In Acts chapter 11, there's now a church in Cyrene, and that church is growing and thriving and sending out people to share the gospel around the world. And so Luke writes here, in verse 26, this is Simon of Cyrene. And he goes on in Acts to talk about how there's a church in Cyrene. How do you think the gospel got to Cyrene? Luke's wanting us to start making a connection here. He's wanting us to see that it was Simon who was part of God's gospel purposes to expand his gospel message. And what's interesting is it would be that church in Cyrene that would go on to take the gospel and plant a church in the city of Antioch. And it would be the church in Antioch at which Paul the most influential Christian in the world has ever known besides Jesus, <laughs> but he wrote like half the New Testament, it would be at the church in Antioch that Paul would be trained, commissioned, and deployed. So, so think about all this. This guy who gets out of nowhere, plucked from the crowd by some witless, 
cruel soldiers and commandeered to carry a cross. Because of what happened to Simon, here's what happened through Simon. His children come to know the Lord and serve him powerfully. His wife becomes like a mother to Paul. There's a church established in Cyrene from which the gospel goes forth to Antioch, and from Antioch, the apostle Paul is sent to the world. And so listen, Simon might look like a victim of injustice in this verse. Simon was just in Jerusalem trying to simply worship God. This experience was certainly a setback in those plans. But God was using this setback as a set up to do something for Simon that he could never imagine for himself. You see, it was through the adversity that Simon experienced on this day that we are reading his story now even today. How easily it could have been for this story to turn out differently. How easily it could have been for Simon to allow his experience of being unfairly and unjustly plucked from a crowd to turn his heart away from God. We can't just imagine the temptation for Simon to be like, God, I showed up to worship you in Jerusalem and this ends up happening to me? This is unfair. This isn't right. If you were a good, kind, and loving God, you would never allow a true worshiper of you to go through adversity like this. Simon's sufferings could have very easily taken him further away from God. But that's not the direction that he went. No, as Simon carried this cross to the hill on which Jesus died, his heart was not moved away from God, but rather drawn closer to God as he saw what God was willing to do for him. On that hill, Simon saw that God is not removed from the atrocities of this world. But he's a God who knows them. He's a God who's felt them himself and experienced them in an even deeper way than we could imagine. Simon went to the cross and experience pain. And it's not that his pain didn't matter. No, carrying the cross was a hardship. There's no denying that. But it was through that hardship that the heart of God was open to him. It's where he saw that God is not corrupt. And so just judgment will come for the wrongs that we do. But on the hill called Calvary, Simon saw Jesus taking the judgment that he deserved. The judgment that we deserve. And so while Simon experienced pain through carrying that cross, it was that pain that led him to the place where he saw Jesus in anguish as Jesus bore our sins on the cross. I'm sure Simon felt weakness from being asked to carry the heavy burden of the cross. But it was his experience of that weakness that led him to the place where he saw Jesus bearing the unimaginable weight of our guilt and shame on the cross. 
I'm sure Simon must have felt hurt by what happened to him. But it was through that hurt that he came to the place where he saw Jesus being crushed for him. You see, it was Simon's experience of suffering that led him to the place where he could see Jesus experiencing ultimate suffering. And seeing Jesus, it didn't change what Simon went through. But it did change Simon. If that cross had not been placed on his back that day, we wouldn't know his name today. It was through his adversity and his suffering that he came to know the suffering of Jesus for him, and that changed everything about him. I remember when I was going to have my first surgery for my Crohn's disease, I was only a teenager. It was going to be extensive, and I was definitely concerned and scared about it. An adult from my church who had been through many, many surgeries before came to the hospital to visit me. We need to have adults involved in our children's lives. So grateful for an adult who took an interest in me. And he sat down, and he just said, Jeff, I just want you to know something that's helped me, maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't, but something that's helped me through all that I've been through is every time I feel pain, it helps me remember Jesus who endured far more pain than I could possibly even imagine. You see, friends, adversity is always directional. It can take our hearts further away from God or bring our hearts further to God, but it will take us somewhere. Adversity is always directional. It can take you away from joy and hope and peace and lead you to fear and bitterness, unsurety, jadedness, and complacency. Or your suffering can bring you closer to Jesus and give you a deeper appreciation of all of His suffering for you. And that's how you can experience greater hope than you can imagine more strength than you thought possible, and a resiliency to your joy that no circumstance can ever change. And so I think the question that we should ask at this point is, which direction are you going in? I know there are people here who have gone through and are going through tremendous suffering. Unfair things, unjust things, hurtful things, painful things, sinful things that you never saw coming. Friend, I believe the reason that the story of Simon is here, captured in God's holy word, out of all the things that could have been written, I believe that God wants to make sure that we knew this man's story so that when we go through suffering, we can, like Simon, walk with Jesus to Calvary and see his suffering. See all that he went through, the hellfire anguish of his tortured soul that he freely endured in love for us. Here's the big idea that I think we should take away from this verse. Because Jesus walked through ultimate suffering, we can walk with Him in our suffering and experience His ultimate peace. Because Jesus walked through ultimate suffering, we can walk with Him in our suffering and experience His ultimate peace. And I mean peace in the biblical sense. 
which is more than just calmness. No, peace in the Bible means wholeness and wellness of our souls. Peace is knowing that no matter what we might happen to us, nothing can change what God has done for us. We might suffer, but peace is knowing that we have a God who walks with us in our suffering. And this is what gives us comfort in our hearts. This is what gives us strength in our weaknesses. This is what gives us a resiliency to our joy, even in the midst of our sorrows. It's learning to walk with Jesus in suffering. So how do we do that? How can we experientially take this from just theory? Okay, great. I want to walk with Jesus. So connect the dots. Break that down. How do we do this? How do we experience walking with Christ? It makes me think of a story by a man named Teddy Stone who completed three walks across America. He walked across America three times to raise awareness and support for faith-based recovery programs. Now, I love our faith-based recovery program, Transformation Recovery, but let me just be clear, I'm not walking across America for it. So (laughs) you'll have one less pastor in the church if that were to happen because I would be taken out. No way could I do that. Cardio is not at all what it used to be. But anyways, Teddy was able to walk, I mean, just so many thousands of miles. And people asked him, how did you do that? Like, how, how, how did you possibly accomplish that? I can't even wrap my mind. How did you accomplish that? He said, oh, it was, it was one step at a time. How did he walk? He walked one step at a time. It was not by learning something new. It was not by learning some secret technique. No, it was by doing something that we all do, doing something that was very familiar, but being able to do it again and again and again, over and over and over. It was through that very simple act of taking a step that Teddy was able to build the endurance to walk across the whole country. Listen, friends, if we won't walk with Jesus, most of the time that's not going to come through learning some new technique. It's not going to come through some profound insight that we didn't know before. No, it's going to come through us doing the ordinary and familiar things that God has told us to do to grow in our relationship with Him. And to continue to do those things over and over and over again, one step at a time. In his excellent book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller, who continued to pray for him and his cancer diagnosis, it is serious and significant. This is what Pastor Keller writes. He says, a walk is day in and day out praying. Day in and day out Bible reading. Day in and day out obeying. Talking to Christian friends. Going to corporate worship. Committing yourself to and fully participating in the life of a church. It is rhythmic. On and on and on. To walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. So walking with God and suffering means that in general you will not experience some kind of instant deliverance from your questions, your sorrows, your fears. There may be days where some new insight comes to you like a ray of light in a dark room, but in general it will be slow and steady progress that comes only if you stick to the regular daily activities of the walking itself. How do we walk God in suffering? By giving ourselves the daily activities that God has given us to do to continue to stay close to Him. Pastor Keller went over them in this paragraph. Let me break them down for you. There are really four basic things that God's called us to do as Christians to continually to walk with Him. Step one, 
Spend time in the Bible every day. God's Word is meant to be our daily bread. The spiritual nutrition that we need every day of our lives. And so whether you prefer to read Scripture or maybe listen to Scripture, daily intake of Scripture is crucial to staying close to Jesus. Because friends, this is not a book merely of information, but of revelation. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, that every page of Scripture is telling us something about Him. And so if we want to get close to Jesus, we have to get to know Jesus more and more by seeing Him come out of each and every page of His holy Word. This is one of the reasons that we do Bible studies here at a church. We want to help disciple people in learning how to grow in reading God's Word for themselves on a daily basis. Friends, when we're in suffering, We need to see Jesus. And this is where we can. Last week, I was reading through the the, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. This came to Genesis chapter 6, where we see the story of Noah, famous Noah's Ark, right? And Noah's told to make this ark, and he spends years making it. And as he's doing it, being faithful to keep God's commands, he's mocked, he's misunderstood, he's ostracized, he's persecuted. But it was that ark that saved him from the coming flood of God's judgment. Friends, that's not just a story about Noah and an ark, that's a story about Jesus, because Jesus is our ark. Following him might cause us to be persecuted, but he's the one who protects us from the storm of God's judgment as wave after wave hit him on the cross so that we might be spared from what we otherwise would deserve. See, as we read our Bible, friends, we need to ask ourselves this question first. Not, what is this saying to me? The first question we need to ask is, what is this telling me about Jesus? How is this showing us Christ? We meet Jesus here. We walk with Him here. Step two, we read the Bible. What else do we do? We pray. We pray continually. It's hard to stay close to someone if you don't spend time talking with someone. Are you on speaking terms with God? We walk with Jesus by forming habits of prayer. You know, as, as, as humans, we're, we're so good at forming habits. Um, and usually it's bad habits. <laughs> you know, we have, we have a little device that we carry around in our pockets that acts like Pavlov's dog, where every time we get a buzz, we immediately look at it. Oh, what's the notification? What's the notification? I had to turn off notifications, right? This is what I start looking at. Right now I hear other people's buzzes, and even though my phone doesn't buzz anymore, like instinctively I go to the back pocket just to grab it, right? We form habits. What if we start forming and learning how to form habits of prayer? I'm a very type A, get stuff done type of person, and so prayer is not something that I just naturally feel given to do. And so in order to form a habit of prayer, the only notification I actually have on my phone is I have a buzzer that goes off to remind me to pray. I'll tell you how it works. I just started doing it a couple weeks ago. Hasn't fully sunk in yet. But how can we form habits of prayer? How can we form things that keep us going to God again and again and again? I will tell you something that's been really helpful. It's learning how to use Scripture to shape and form our prayers. So often when we pray, it can be hard. We're closing our eyes and like we become distracted. I start having a million thoughts going through my mind. And so one of the best ways to learn to pray is to take God's words and prayerfully send them back to God. So for example, here's what I mean by this. Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God, thank you that you're my shepherd. 
would you help me not to have any wants in you? Would you help me to be satisfied in you? Would you help me to trust the leading of you? Would you help me to come under your shepherding hand and want to follow you? Right, I'm just taking God's word and I'm starting to pray it back to God. Friends, we need to pray continually. Step, read the Bible. Step, pray. Step three, fellowship with other Christians. God says that to be a Christian is to be part of his body. And so that means that we need other people in our lives who have a relationship with God if we want to have a healthy relationship with God ourselves. As you've heard me say many times before, trying to love Jesus without having relationships with other Christians and regularly spending time with them is like trying to have a relationship with a head that's detached from a body. Right? That's weird and, let's be honest, a little creepy. Jesus does not intend us just to have a relationship with us and him. He intends us to have a relationship with the whole of him, which means having a relationship with other Christians who show us Christ through them. We can't stay close to Jesus by ourselves. We need other people in our lives. And the Bible calls this more than just friendship. The Bible calls this fellowship, which means a sharing of our spiritual selves with one another. We had someone who was coming out to our church for close to about a year and then just kind of abruptly left. And so like I do for most people, I, you know, I want to know, hey, anything we need to grow? Like what, you know, what happened? Um, it was a couple years ago. And, uh, and he said, well, I, I really didn't come to know anyone and I didn't feel like anyone really just reached out to me. It's one of the reasons that, you know, we always want to stress here the importance of welcoming others. And not just people who are new, maybe someone you've seen a lot before, but you've never talked to them before. There could be someone who's sitting here and feeling like, man, I just have never been greeted. Right? We all want to be part of the welcoming team here. Your welcome can make a big impact on someone's life. But, but I asked this guy a couple questions. I said, hey, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I try to express some empathy over that. And I said, hey, but have, have, you, have you ever been to a small group? I don't remember seeing you there. He's like, no, no, I don't really have time for that. Have you ever been to one of our Bible studies? He's like, no, no, I didn't really think that was for me. I'm, I'm, have you, I'm trying to think if I've seen you at a church picnic before. And he's like, no, I'm usually busy on Sunday afternoons. I, I don't want to give time to that. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, i got to be honest with you. How do you expect people to get to know you? Right? Friends, Sunday morning is a time where you might be able to meet someone for a few minutes and talk to them, but this is not like, you know, all the depth of fellowship that God wants you to experience. Sunday is meant to be a launching point into deeper relationship. Charles shared about that earlier this morning, didn't he? He got greeted on Sunday, and then he was eating in someone's home a few days after that, Right? What if he had turned that invitation down? What if they had been too busy to go to a small group, right? Would they have gotten connected in the same way? I don't think so. And so, friends, Sundays are a great time to, to experience just being with other people and being welcomed, but this is not the place where we actually are going to develop friendships. That comes to our small groups and Bible studies and having people over for dinner, going out for coffee, meeting in parks. And let's just be honest, COVID has done a real number on our social skills and has made it very easy to be isolated. We can't stay close to Jesus and not be around other people. I know I need people continually in my life encouraging me and pointing me to Jesus, especially when life gets hard. Step one, read the Bible. Step two, pray. Step three, fellowship. Step four, prioritize the gathering of the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 talks about how it was the regular practice of the early church to come together on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, was known in the Bible as the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And they would come together on the Lord's Day and they would do things that we do here. They would sing. Why do we sing? 
Because Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that when we sing to God together, assembled as His church, the very presence of Christ dwells in us richly. You might enjoy singing in the shower or jamming in your car. Praise God for that. But there is unique experience that can only happen as we are here, spiritually joined together with our Christian brothers and sisters, raising our voices in unison to God. They would sing. They would pray. They would hear preaching. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word and says it's the most significant thing to do for the building up of the church as we encounter God through His Word being proclaimed. And so listen, I, I like to listen to sermons on YouTube. I do it on almost a daily basis. You know, I'm working out. People might think I'm listening to like music to get me motivated. Like, no, I'm usually listening to a sermon. Um, but that's a totally different experience than hearing the preaching of God's Word assembled together as God's church. I learn a lot from that stuff, but we encounter God through the preaching of His Word here. It's through this holy moment that God builds us together. And then they would also, the early church, they would share in the Lord's Supper together. The meal that Jesus gave his church. We celebrate here every week when we take bread that's broken and drink, the, uh, drink something, the color of blood, to remind ourselves how Jesus was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us. And that's not just a memorial. No, as we take those things in, we are being spiritually nourished in our faith, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 6. So listen, friends, here's what we have to understand. Church is not a nice add-on that we try to fit in as we can. No, God has said that this time being together, physically present with one another, is a sacred thing that we need for the good of our souls. Again, I think there are some habits and some things that we've learned through COVID that we need to start to unlearn. Oh, it's easier. I'll just turn the live stream on. Listen, we're grateful for the live stream. We have someone who's watching right now from the hospital. Brother, we're praying for you, thinking about you. We're grateful for how the live stream serves people who cannot be physically present here, but the live stream is never a substitute for what God can only do through us being together here. We need to be together as God's church. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 commands us not to neglect this meeting together. Why does God command us that? Because he's our loving father who knows what our souls need. Friends, a person can no more thrive as a Christian without being consistently present with the church, then a coal can catch on fire without being exposed to a source of heat. Now, none of these things are extraordinary, are they? I didn't tell you anything new. Here's how you stay close to Jesus. You read your Bible. You pray. You fellowship with other Christians. You go to church. Nothing new. My kids could tell you those are the four things that Christians need to do. There's nothing extraordinary about them. But I tell you what, if you do those things over and over and over again, it is through those regular, ordinary, consistent steps that we continually walk with Jesus. So friends, suffering is always directional. It will take you somewhere. And so I want to exhort you, don't waste your suffering by allowing it to take you away from God. Now hear the story of Simon and use your suffering as an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus who experienced ultimate suffering for you. Walk with Jesus in your suffering, Christ Church. Because Jesus experienced ultimate suffering, we can walk with Him in our suffering and experience His ultimate peace. As the hymn says, the soul that is trusting in Jesus the Lord 
will press on enduring the darkest of storms. And though even hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's bow our heads in prayer.